Hello, and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today, we'll be taking a look back at a movie that inspired a major musical movement, yet is hardly spoken about among cinephiles today. Ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. You're fired! I need the money. Corinne Burns, what are you going to do? My name is not Corinne Burns. Oh, what is it? It's third degree Burns. I'm the lead singer and manager for the Stains. It has become clear to several thousand very young women, inspired by an unrecorded rock and roll band with see-through blouses and white stripes in their hair, that life is to be lived right now. You are going to be really good. Can't explain it. really amounts to is uh, girl dropouts who are using the media. She said things that I've always wanted to say, and I haven't been able to. We're the stains, and we don't put out. We weren't like that, were we, Brenda? No, we weren't. You are moving so fast. You're happening so fast. You can't afford to be loyal to this guy. you still hanging around here? Why don't you just go back to wherever it was you came from? You've got a lot to learn, you little... As someone who once planned on being a screenwriter, I've always been fascinated as to how writers come up with their ideas for their movies. After graduating from UCLA Film School, screenwriter Nancy Dowd burst onto the movie scene in the mid-1970s when her script for a raunchy, hockey-based comedy would get picked up by Universal Pictures, and which would feature a reunion between George Roy Hill and Paul Newman, the director and star of the Best Picture Oscar winner of 1973, The Sting. The film, Slapshot, would open in February 1977 and become one of the biggest hits of the year, and Dowd would get nominated for a Writers Guild Award for Best Original Screenplay. Her next produced screenplay was originally written in 1972, when she was hired by actress Jane Fonda to write a story inspired by the actress's friendship with Vietnam veteran and anti-war activist Ron Kovic. But unlike most war movies, Fonda wanted to make a film about the consequences of the war as seen through the eyes of a military wife. Originally titled Buffalo Ghosts, the story would focus on two women, volunteers at a veterans hospital, who deal with the emotional toll the Vietnam War has taken on its casualties, their families, and themselves. That's a pretty brave story to work on in the middle of a very unpopular war, and from a producer whose derisive nickname Hanoi Jane, still freshly rung in the ears of supporters of the war. But the project would be revised and reworked, first by Fonda, then by director Hal Ashby, then by John Voigt, who was hired to play the lead character inspired by Kovic, 
And finally by screenwriters Waldo Salt and Robert C. Jones, who had been Ashby's editor on The Last Detail, Shampoo, and Bound for Glory. That movie, Coming Home, would become a surprise box office hit and would win Dowd an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay as the credited writer who came up with the original story. But while Fonda, Voigt, Ashby, and Bruce Dern were off shooting the film, Dowd was enjoying her time as a highly paid script doctor on such films as Ulu Grossbard's Dustin Hoffman drama Straight Time and Ted Kotcheff's football comedy North Dallas 40, as well as another very famous movie I'll tell you about later in the episode. But she would also take time off writing to enjoy going to concerts. One show that would inspire her was seeing the Ramones live at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium on January 27, 1978. Or, more specifically, seeing the Runaways open for the Ramones at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium on January 27, 1978. Dowd was astounded watching these five teenage girls playing rock and roll as good as, or even better than, most of the 20- and 30-something rock stars who were regularly featured on the covers of Billboard and Rolling Stone. In the United Kingdom, punk rock had become a major force in music, and journalist Caroline Kuhn would be amongst the first to become a proponent of the new sound in her articles for Melody Maker magazine. She would champion the likes of The Police and The Clash, even becoming their manager for a short spell. So prolific Kuhn was in writing about the punk scene, she would be able to expand upon a number of her articles into a book, The New Wave Punk Rock Explosion. Dowd would discover the book and worked to track Kuhn down in London. The two women would speak on the phone for hours at a time, when a transatlantic phone call would cost a couple of dollars per minute, and Kuhn would convince Dowd to come to England to witness firsthand what was happening with this latest form of youthful rebellion. In London, Dowd and Kuhn would get along fabulously, talking about the music and the kids, and Kuhn would drop an interesting tidbit during one of their conversations. Kuhn was convinced feminism was going to become the next big thing to come out of punk rock, and she convinced Dowd that this was the direction her screenplay should go, a feminist allegory of how women rockers could get equality. Dowd's screenplay would feature a 17-year-old lead character, Corinne Burns, who needs to work at a local restaurant to take care of herself and her younger sister, Tracy, after their mother dies of cancer. Corinne gets interviewed by a local television channel about her town and its economy in the wake of a major recession. Uh, incidentally, Corinne is from the same town, Charleston, Pennsylvania, where the Chiefs hockey team plays in the movie Slapshot. During the interview, Corinne gets angry with the reporter about the questions she's being asked, then gets in a fight with her boss on camera, which leads to her getting fired from her job. When the segment airs, Corinne's story resonates with other teenage girls in her area, and the station does a follow-up story on her, where she continues to be angry about the world. But she is able to get a mention about her all-girl rock group, The Stains, consisting of herself, her sister, and her cousin Jessica. Attending a local rock show featuring a washed-up metal band called The Metal Corpses and an up-and-coming punk band, The Looters, 
Corinne is able to get a local rock promoter to add the Stains to the tour lineup without hearing them play based on her local infamy. Corinne and the girls see how poorly the two other bands get on together. And when it's time to play their first show, the Stains are really bad. Jessica and Tracy can't really play their instruments very well, and Corinne lashes out at the audience when they start to boo the girls. When the metal corpses need to leave the tour due to a tragedy, the looters become the new headliners, and their lead singer, Billy, tries to get the Stains replaced from the tour as quickly as possible. But when the Stains go out for the next show, Corinne, who now wishes to be called Third Degree Burns, debuts an absolutely new look for herself in the band. See-through blouses worn over black bikini briefs, a more pinkish style of makeup, and hair dyed to resemble skunks. As they play, Corinne's standoffish attitude and the band's inability to play well become a feminist call for female empowerment, especially when Corinne announces that she never puts out. The Saints become a sensation around the country, and teenage girls start to copy Corinne's dress style. She and Billy start to bond, only to see their appreciation for each other slide when his band's manager shows up with a new act to replace hers. In retaliation, the Stains play one of the looters' songs, which rockets them into further success. But that success is short-lived, as Billy excoriates Corinne as a corporate sellout. The Stains fans riot, their shows are cancelled, and just as quick as it all came together for Corinne, she finds herself back in her hometown, a nobody once again. Dowd's screenplay would end with a group of British skunkettes, what followers of Corinne, who dress like her and dye their hair like her, are called, proudly emulating their hero from across the ocean. One of the people who would read the screenplay was Lou Adler. In the music industry, Lou Adler was a legend. He was the founder of Dunhill Records in 1964, which would introduce the Mamas and the Papas to the world. Then he was the vice president at the television production company Screen Gems, responsible for selling the monkeys to a skeptical music audience. He produced the famous 1967 Monterey Pop Festival that made Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin famous. He would also start Ode Records, which would help transition Carol King from a Grammy-winning songwriter to a Grammy-winning performer. He'd also bring about the comedy of Cheech and Chong to the world. In 1967, he would get involved in film production when he also produced the film version of the Monterey Pop Music Festival. He would team up with Robert Altman to produce Brewster McCloud in 1970. In 1973, while on a trip to London, he'd catch the Rocky Horror Show on the West End, and he would end up not only bringing the production to America, he would also produce the Rocky Horror Picture Show, as well as its 1981 non-sequel follow-up, Shock Treatment. In 1978, he would transition to film directing when his friends Cheech and Chong asked him to produce and direct their first film, Up in Smoke. The film would become a smash hit, introduce the stoner movie to the cinematic lexicon, and would make Adler even richer than he had ever been before. Adler would take the script for the then-titled All Washed Up to Paramount, the company who released Up in Smoke, and told them that this was the movie he wanted to make next. Paramount gave Adler and his producer, Joe Roth, 
who would become chairman of Walt Disney Pictures in the mid-90s, $2 million to go make it. And in late 1979, they would begin casting for the film. For the lead of Corinne, he would cast the then 14-year-old Diane Lane, who had made her film debut earlier in the year in George Roy Hill's romantic comedy, A Little Romance. For the role of Corinne's younger sister and Stane's guitarist Tracy, Adler would cast 19-year-old Marin Cantor, who would be making her film debut. Laura Dern, who would celebrate her 13th birthday during production of the movie, would be making her second film here, playing Corinne's cousin and the band bassist, Jessica. With the help of Dowd and Kuhn, Adler would cast several British actors and musicians in key roles. Ray Winstone, the 23-year-old co-star of Frank Rodham's Quadrophenia, would be making his American debut as Billy, the lead singer of the Looters. But it's the three people who play the remaining members of the band that make this movie really special. Steve Jones and Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols, and Paul Simonon of The Clash. By this time, the Sex Pistols were infamous and also broken up, while The Clash were not yet famous, so it wasn't too much of a problem if one of the members left for a few months to make a movie, especially one that, if successful, could shine a brighter light on the band as a whole. Jones and Cook had founded a new band, The Professionals, which had just finished recording their debut album. But they were also mired in a lawsuit with their bassist over unpaid royalties, so they would have time to work on a movie while the lawyers sorted everything out. The remainder of the cast would be filled with actors who would become more famous in the years to come, including future Oscar winner Christine Lottie, character actor David Clennon, St. Elsewhere's Cynthia Sykes, Everyone's favorite android from Star Trek, Brent Spiner. Elizabeth Daly, who would become best known as a voice actress for a number of animated shows, including, including Rugrats and the Powerpuff Girls. And future B-movie queen, Debbie Rashawn, who at 12 years old would be playing one of the so-called skunkettes. Fee Waybill, the lead singer of The Tubes, would play the lead singer of The Metal Corpses, who may or may not have been modeled intentionally or unintentionally, on Alice Cooper. Production would begin in February of 1980, but one of its stars almost didn't make it. Laura Dern's mother, actress Diane Ladd, didn't want her not-yet-teenage daughter heading off to Canada for the five-month shoot with a bunch of British hooligans and punks and refused to give Dern permission to go. Dern threatened to sue for legal emancipation from her parents if she wasn't allowed to go, and Mom would acquiesce. Ironically, Dern would tell an interviewer for the New York Times Magazine in 2019 it would be one of those punk hooligans, Sex Pistols drummer Paul Cook, who would set her straight for life with frank discussions about the problems of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in the British music industry. To most people, the shoot was rather uneventful outside of a scene where Ray Winstone may or may not have accidentally punched Fee Waybill in the eye during a scene when the two singers fight offstage. But behind the scenes, a power struggle was brewing. Kuhn and Dowd were a part of the production, which would cause tensions because Adler had decided to make some last-minute changes to the story, often to the detriment of the screenplay the women had worked on. Adler would start tossing out scenes that were supposed to be filmed very soon 
and demanded rewrites right then and there to be ready when cameras rolled. Dowd and Kuhn would become so frustrated with Adler's interference, they would walk off the film, although the final straw was Dowd's getting groped by one of the camera operators while cameras were rolling on one of the concert scenes. Dowd would request Paramount credit her as Rob Morton on the final version of the film, and Kuhn would get a creative consultant credit. On her website, Kuhn would mention some of her involvement in the film as part of an essay for a fanzine that would accompany a screening of the film in London in 2016. Kuhn would write, By the time I was aged 30, I had concluded that censoring what I wore, what women wear to control male sexual violence and engender respect for women, was an unworkable, failed tactic. So I made new feminist rules for myself. I trained my mind to realize that, covered or naked, my body was not an incitement. Naked or clothed, my body was not an invitation. Flesh is not immoral. Naked is not permission. I would wear whatever I wanted or nothing at all. My purpose now was to educate men. Men would have to learn to see, appreciate, and understand female flesh and female sexuality without any patriarchal entitlement to assault and rape. Without my consent, no man, no person, had the right to touch my body. This was my experience and understanding when, in 1978, Nancy Dowd asked me to work with her on the film, originally called All Washed Up. The clothes and the flame makeup I designed for Corinne and the Stains are a conscious and informed expression of my feminist awareness. The message of my design was, look, don't touch. Unless they have her consent, naked or not, no one has the right to touch or invade a woman's body. No means no. The clothes the stains wear are both a cover and a nakedness, both hard and soft. I wanted the ethics in my designs, reflected in Dowd's story, to convey the tension in how human beings treat each other and women struggled to be counted as innovative and creative artists. The clothes the stains wear signify female bodily integrity while not denying the beauty of women's human sensuality and sex. The clothes are an expression of what Corinne wants, to be treated as an equal human being with consideration and love. Several original songs were conceived for the film. Four songs were written and performed by actor and musician Barry Ford, who plays the local concert promoter Lawn Boy, who brings the fabulous stains on tour with the Metal Corpses and the Looters. A fifth Ford-written song featured lyrics by Nancy Dowd, which would be performed by the stains in the movie. Four other songs played by the Looters would be written by Steve Jones and Paul Cook, while Fee Waybill and fellow Tubes member Bill Spooner would write a song for the Metal Corpses to play. And thanks to movies like American Gigolo, Fame, and Urban Cowboy, a prime spot on the soundtrack to a hit film was one way an up-and-coming band or artist could break into the mainstream. So there was a lot riding on the success of the film for bands like The Professionals and The Tubes. But there would be one small problem. When Adler turned in his cut of the film in late 1980, 
and Paramount recruited an audience in Denver to test their reactions, the screening did not go very well, especially the maudlin ending where Corinne watches a group of skunkettes still dressed like her sing their songs even after the riot that had effectively ended her musical career. In fact, the screening would go so poorly that Paramount would put the movie, as the oft-used colloquialism goes, on the proverbial shelf. Adler would focus on finishing shock treatment, Dowd would go on to write Swing Shift, the Jonathan Demme movie whose own troubled production in 1983 would be deserving of its own focused podcast, and Paramount would go on to have one of their better years in 1981, releasing The Postman Always Rings Twice, Atlantic City, Friday the 13th Part 2, Gallipoli, Reds, and a little Steven Spielberg action movie starring Harrison Ford. You may have heard of it, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, and they'd win their first Best Picture Oscar in six years, when Robert Redford's Ordinary People was announced the winner in late March of 1981. Ironically, it would be Dowd's uncredited script doctoring of Alvin Sargent's adaptation of the Judith Guest novel that finally got the studio to commit to Redford's unconventional choice of a directing debut. Sargent would win the award for Best Adapted Screenplay, but he would not thank Dowd in his acceptance speech. It seemed the film was destined to never see the light of day, until an unexpected development in the summer of 1981 would put the movie in a new frame. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. On August 1st, 1981, a new cable channel made its debut, devoted exclusively to what would be called a music video, short movies where a band would perform a song for cameras. The concept of music videos had been around for decades. The Beatles made a number of them for their songs from 1965 to 1969, often to be shown on variety shows and specials in lieu of them performing live, which they had sworn off in 1965. David Bowie was making them starting with his very first music single, 1969's Space Oddity. The idea of a music video channel had been in the works since December 1977, when Warner Cable tested a specialized channel called Sight on Sound in Columbus, Ohio. But MTV, Music Television, would be the first national attempt to create a channel devoted to airing music videos. The impact of music sales was immediate, as bands who were featured on MTV were selling at a higher rate than bands not featured on the channel, and MTV helped break a number of female-centric rock and pop acts. Suddenly, the feminism, punk, and new wave revolution Caroline Kuhn had envisioned years earlier that inspired Dow to write the movie seemed like it was actually going to happen. So Adler pitched Paramount a new ending for the movie, where Corinne and the Stains would become stars on an MTV-like channel, with their music video for Join the Professionals playing over the end credits. 
Paramount would approve the idea and gave Adler a very small amount of money to shoot it. It would take a few months of clearing schedule conflicts before production could begin with Lane, Dern, and Kantner to shoot the new ending. More than two years after the film had started production, the music video ending would be shot with the now 15-year-old Laura Dern towering over her co-stars, having grown several inches over the intervening gap. But when Paramount tested the film again with the new ending, the results were the same. The test audiences just did not like the movie. Now, depending on the source, Paramount either released the film into a select number of theaters on October 15, 1982, or they put it back on the shelf for a few more years. I've spent several days doing research for this episode, and one of the things I was trying to find was a single display ad or movie review from any newspaper anywhere in America, and I just cannot find one for this movie on this date. One thing we do know is that Paramount would eventually license the movie to show on USA Network, the basic cable channel Paramount co-owned with Universal and Time magazine starting in 1984. And thanks to repeated showings on the USA flagship weekend late night visual arts show Night Flight, the film would start to gain what is commonly referred to as a cult audience. Rare is the film that gets a theatrical release after becoming a cult film on cable, but Paramount would finally acquiesce and give ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains of belated theatrical release more than five years after production had begun on the movie. Sort of. A sub-distributor called Films Incorporated would license the film from Paramount, and then Films Inc. would front the cost of a theatrical release in exchange for a larger share of the box office receipts. The first theater to show the movie on March 6, 1985, was the much-beloved local repertory film institution Film Forum in New York City. Janet Maslin of the New York Times cautioned potential viewers that the movie promised to be of interest as a show business satire, but was notable chiefly as a footnote to the career of Diane Lane, to show just how much Lane had become a star in the intervening years. Maslin would wonder how someone with such insider knowledge of the music industry, like Lou Adler, could make a film that reflected absolutely none of that expertise. Dern, whose breakthrough role in Mask would not be released in theaters for another two days, is not mentioned at all in the review. The film would play for a week in Chicago at Facets Cinematheque, their much-beloved local repertory film institution, starting on April 26th. It would only play one show in Los Angeles at the Fox International Theater in Venice as part of their Summer Music Film Festival in July. It would also play short runs in Atlanta in July and Philadelphia in August. But when all was said and done, the final box office tally for Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Danes, would end up being a mere $25,728. By the end of 1985, the fortunes of many of the participants in the making of the movie had changed, some for the better, some for the worst. Diane Lane would have become something of a star by the end of 1985, 
having already starred in three Francis Ford Coppola movies in two years, as well as Streets of Fire and the television miniseries Lonesome Dove. At the age of 20, she would earn her first Emmy Award nomination, as well as praise from her A Little Romance co-star Laurence Olivier, who called her the new Grace Kelly, and from pop artist Andy Warhol, who declared her to be the undisputed female lead of Hollywood's new Rat Pack. Laura Dern capped off her 1985 with a highly praised performance in Joyce Chopper's Smooth Talk when there was serious awards talk for the then 18-year-old. Marin Cantor would have already stopped acting by the time the movie opened at the film forum, although she had made three more movies after The Fabulous Stains, including a supporting performance alongside Willem Dafoe in Catherine Bigelow's 1981 feature debut, The Loveless. Ray Winstone would spend the rest of the 80s and most of the 90s as a working actor in a number of British television series until his work in 1997's Nil by Mouth and 2000's Sexy Beast would bring him the international acclaim that would catapult him into major roles for filmmakers like Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, and Robert Zemeckis. Paul Simonon would remain a member of The Clash until their breakup in 1986, and he would retire from music altogether from 1993 until 2006 before collaborating with Damon Albarn on the British supergroup The Good, The Bad, and The Queen and Albarn's fake animated band, Gorillaz. Steve Jones and Paul Cook would record one of the songs featured in the movie, Join the Professionals, for their own band, The Professionals, even recording a music video for the song, which they hoped to release around the time of the release of the movie in fall 1982. The Professionals would break up in 1983, having only released one album in 1981. Join the Professionals was not on that album, and would not get an official release until a late 1990s reissue of that Soul Professionals album that included a number of songs recorded but not released by the band. Since 2005, Steve Jones has been the host of the single greatest radio show ever, Jonesy's Jukebox, where he is allowed to play whatever music he wants and interview whomever he wants without any interference from station programmers, provided he stays within FCC broadcast standards. You can hear the shows Fridays from noon to 2 p.m. on the Los Angeles Rock radio station, KLOS. After filming the movie in 1980, The Tubes recorded and released two albums that would hit the Billboard Top 40 charts in 1981 and 1983, and have two songs, Talk To You Later and She's a Beauty, that would both hit the top ten of Billboard's mainstream rock charts. Waybill would cement his image as a rock icon when he played one of the three most important people in the world in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. 
Lou Adler would return to the music industry shortly after finishing the movie. He would never direct again. And the movie itself would become a major influence on the third-wave feminist Riot Girl movement that started in the Pacific Northwest in the early 1990s. Artists like Courtney Love, Danita Sparks of L7, and Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill have waxed poetically about the film and how it helped them to form their own viewpoints of the world and, and inspire them to become musicians. It would take several more years, but Kuhn was finally proven right in her prediction in 1978. Feminism had finally come to rock and roll. Women rockers were organizing their own festival shows. Artists like Alanis Morissette and Fiona Apple were confronting men and their attitudes towards sexuality and masculinity and selling millions of albums in the process. DIY artists like Liz Fair would get signed by major record labels and appear on the covers of major music publications. I missed my original opportunities to see the film in the 1980s. I would have been a month away from my 15th birthday had it been released in October 1982, and was working 25 miles away the night it played at that summer music movie festival at the Fox Venice in July 1985. My family was too poor to afford cable television when I was in high school, so I missed my chances to see it on night flight. When I finally did catch it on DVD in 2001, I was 33 and going through as amicable of a divorce as humanly possible, but I was still going through a fairly strong bout of depression at the time, and my heart just wasn't in it. I will always find it interesting to watch movies and television shows that were made in and represent a specific time frame, especially ones that take place in a certain decade I'm rather fond of, and feature leading characters who were around my same age at the time they were made. So that's what kept me watching then. I watched it again this week for the first time in 20 years, with all the additional life experiences I've brought with me since then, and I found the movie to be better than I remember, but I also saw where test audiences 40 years ago would have problems with it. Corinne is not a very interesting character to follow around for an hour and a half, but the parts of the film I found most interesting back then and today were the interactions between the four members of the looters, knowing that three of the four lads provided a portion of my musical knowledge during that time frame. Seeing the similarities of how they acted around each other with my own lads in my own bands. We would never become almost famous or even briefly infamous, but we enjoyed making our goofy music and busting each other's chops. Today, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous Stains and its slightly older stepsister, Alan Moyle's Times Square, have been given their rightful place as innovative films that have captured a moment in time before the moment really even started happening. Watching them together would be a fantastic double feature, but sadly, Times Square is currently unavailable in any form. It has never been made available for streaming, and its only American DVD release came back in November 2000 from Anchor Bay. However, a standard definition copy of The Fabulous Danes can be rented for $2.99 or purchased for $9.99 from Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, and YouTube while Apple TV has a high-definition version of the film for rent at $3.99. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Trick Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. 
Thank you again. Good night. Come on.